Good morning. It's good to be here with you all again on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, this morning we are going to uh, begin kind of our spring series, um, and the series is called Growing in Grace, as you see um, on your bulletins there. And uh, this is going to be a series on um, growing in personal disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And um, for many of us, for some of us, we might have different reactions to uh, a series based on spiritual disciplines, um, because when we hear the word discipline, um, we often have really negative reactions to it. And so there's a couple different thoughts that we might have as we talk about spiritual disciplines. Um, we can think about it as maybe a task that we need to incorporate into our lives that we probably don't currently have in our lives. Um, there's a lot of ways of just kind of misthinking around what spiritual disciplines are and how they function. Um, some of us might think of uh, maybe this next couple of weeks is going to sound like maybe a five-step program uh, to get closer to Jesus. Uh, maybe it'll sound like to you like, oh man, spiritual disciplines, I need to like bend my will. It's going to be a week where I'm just going to get scolded um, for the next seven weeks of like how I need to try harder. Um, and I just want to let you know that it's not going to be a five-step program and it's not going to be um, you need to try harder. Um, those are uh, myths. <laughs> those are misunderstandings of the spiritual disciplines. And so um, we want to avoid those things from the front. And so the purpose of practicing the spiritual disciplines and kind of teaching through them and going through them is so that we might understand what it is to live life with God, to live life with God. That is the purpose of the disciplines. And <laughs> the, the misnomer around the disciplines that we kind of also carry is that um, the disciplines are these kind of mechanics that if we just do them, that the disciplines will provide growth, um, especially when we have a series called Growing in Grace. The idea is that, well, if I do these disciplines, then I will experience growth in my life. But the reality is, is that the disciplines in and of themselves are incapable of producing growth in our lives. Um, you can go through the mechanics of all the spiritual disciplines in the Bible and still not experience any type of growth. Um, and it's because I think that there are many ways that we approach the disciplines poorly and wrongly, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but the disciplines are not the place where growth is found, but the disciplines allow us to get to the place where growth is found, and that, that is with God. Um, growth only comes from God and only comes with God, and it's only through God that we are able to grow in any type of way. It's not a way that we can uh, manufacture growth on our own. It's not a way that we can do these spiritual disciplines and experience growth, but it's only through encountering God that we can experience growth. And so the way that we have to look at these disciplines in the next seven weeks is as a vehicle, as a vehicle that gets us to God where he can produce the growth that we are looking for in our lives. It's kind of like going to the hospital, right? You go to a hospital and you don't get better just by being at the hospital. You're at the hospital for a reason, and that is to meet with a doctor who is able to give you the health that you need. And so um, can you get better by not being in the hospital? Probably, but <laughs> the hospital is not the thing that makes you better. It is the doctor and meeting with the doctor and the medicine that is available at the hospital that makes you better. The spiritual disciplines are like that hospital. It's like the vehicle that gets us to the doctor who is able to allow us to grow 
and experience grace as God has intended. And so the disciplines allow us to meet with God and experience the grace of God from him. Now, when we talk about the disciplines, I think that we have a mix of motivations as to why we go out and maybe leave from this place and go do them, or maybe why you've participated in them in the past. And I think that they, um, at first, sound like really good reasons and ways that we can participate in the disciplines, but if you participate them in these ways, you will not experience the growth that you are hoping for. And so um, the way that (laughs) I like to look at this is that there are kind of four different relationships that we carry um, kind of in our subconscious when we talk about God, when we think about our relationship with God. And the four are um, under. So there's a place where we think that our relational position is under God. There's a place where our relational position we think is over God. There's a place where we think that we are going to get things from God. And then there's a place where we think that we are going to do things for God. And so um, when we talk about the disciplines and we think about them, um, I think that we are often tempted to either do them in places where we see ourselves under God, over God, to get stuff from God, or to do things for God. And all of these um, miss the mark. But I want to dive into them just a little bit deeper um, because I feel like if we address them now, hopefully um, throughout the next seven weeks, we can look at the disciplines kind of like from the right place uh, and, and we can kind of get these these false places out of our systems, out of our spirits. And so the first one is under God. And when we see the disciplines as a place where we see ourselves under God, we see the disciplines as a sort of task. That we come to church and we hear the sermons that, like today we're going to talk about prayer, and you're going to be like, all right, I need to get more prayer into my life. I need to put this task into my life because that's what being a good Christian is about. Is It's about doing prayer. And this, it puts us in a position in which we find ourselves under God. God has given us commandments, and I'm going to follow them. And I believe that if I follow these commandments, then I will become more righteous. That I will grow in my righteousness towards God. <clears throat> and oftentimes, that when we see the dis- disciplines in this way, as rigorous commands, as I need to go pray, I need to go and do the function of prayer, we can become very legalistic about it and we can end up just doing the mechanics of it without ever experiencing any type of growth in our life. And so that's kind of the under God spot. Um, So I think a lot of us um, kind of from birth and even all religion kind of outside of Christianity has this idea of us being under God, that, you know, the gods are mad and we need to appease the gods by following their commands, and if we do the right things at the right times, then the gods will be happy with us. Um, And so that's life under God, and that's how we can perceive the commandments as being under God. Now there's also the kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is life over God. Life over God, and and seeing the disciplines as life over God. And so maybe maybe you're here this morning, and you hear of spiritual disciplines, and you're not excited. You're like, you know, I'm not excited about the spiritual disciplines. I've never participated in them before. I'm going to sit through this series. Probably won't participate in them after this series. I'm just going to keep showing up each week. And, you know, if there's something cool that that the the pastor says that kind of resonates with me, then maybe, maybe I'll include part of that into my life. But for the most part, you know, 
I really don't see much use for the disciplines. I'm kind of over it. I'm kind of over, over the disciplines, kind of over um, God. And in this place, we see our relationship with God as kind of more peripheral. God is kind of on the side. And if we find like a nice, convenient truth, then we will like try and incorporate it into our life, but we're not going to put much intentionality or discipline into our lives. And what's, what's interesting is that when we look at culture, when we look at society, um, the greatest places of conflict are um, people that find themselves under God and those that find themselves over God. Because the under God people are like, oh, did you pray? Did you pray this week? Like, you, you better have been praying. And the over guy, guys are like, you know, like, sure, maybe I prayed, maybe I didn't pray. Like, what's it matter? And, you know, I think you're too self-righteous in your prayer. And so what we have is we have people that try and move other people from these positions of the over God people want to move people that are under God to their position of over God. And people that are under God want to see these people that see themselves over God and be like, no, you got to get under God. This is the place. This is the right place that you need to find themselves living. And the reality is that both people have kind of missed the mark as to what our relationship with God is truly to look like. Now, we have a third place, and this is from God. From God, this is a place where we do the disciplines as kind of a form of manipulation or a form of kind of transaction where we believe that if I do the disciplines, then God will bless me. That if I do these disciplines that we're going to lay out in the next seven weeks, then God is going to give me lots of cool stuff. He's going to bring peace to my marriage. He's going to uh, maybe give me a car. He might give me a raise. Um, you know, any type of place where we think that if we can go to God and say, hey, I'm going to do these things for you and hope that we can manipulate God into um, convincing him that he should give us stuff is this kind of place where we relate with God from a place where it's just like, nope, I'm just, my function with God is that I'm just here to receive stuff from God. And I think that we can get to that place in the disciplines and practicing them. And then finally, <laughs> there's a place where we can do the disciplines from a place where um, we think that we are doing them for God. Um, it comes with a sense of pride that the people under God have. People under God have a sense of pride like, I'm doing this because it's God's command and, and I'm following it. And there's a pride there. And the people that do the, do the, the disciplines for God have a sense of pride as well. Like, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for him, I'm trying to align my life so that everything I do is for God. And what that does is that makes us feel very, very self-righteous. That my life is more important than your life because, hey, I don't know what you're doing your life for, but I'm living my life for God. And oftentimes, we see the disciplines in that way. And it can be difficult because you're going to be like, Justin, I thought we are supposed to live our life for God. I thought we were supposed to live our life under God's commandments. I thought we were supposed to live our life where we do receive blessing from God. And it's true. It's true that all of these things exist. But the problem is, is that oftentimes these places, especially under, from, for, and from, become idols in our life to where we miss the true spirit and the true hope that God has for us. And that is God hopes that our relationship with, with him would be one that is seen that where we do life with God. We don't do life to be under God. We don't do life to be over God. We don't do life to, be, to receive stuff from him. We don't do life even for him. 
but to do life with him. And I think that when we move to this place where we move to a place where I see my function and my relationship with God as we are doing this life together, and I'm doing my life with God, it is where all of these things will begin to fall into place. It's where mission will have its right spot because that's where this for God is, is kind of coming from, this idea of we need to go and do mission. But if we're walking with God, God is mission. And so mission's going to happen. When this place of under God has this idea of we need to live according by the commands, we need to live holy. But if we're walking with God, those things are going to happen. And so it's from this place that we were designed to live because in the beginning, God created us for relationship with him. In the beginning, God created us and he put us in a garden and he walked and lived with us. And then in the middle of the story, we mess that up. And then in the middle of the story, Jesus comes and he has this name called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Jesus kind of leaves and he brings us a spirit that might live inside of us that might live with us and among us. And then at the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, John says this. John says that God has come to dwell among us, to live with us. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the, things have, for the first things have passed away. And so this is just a beautiful story. The Bible is a beautiful story of God kind of dying to be with us. To be with us. And so that's how we need to look at the spiritual disciplines as we move forward. Is not as a means to manipulate, not as a means to get stuff from, not as a means to, to prove our self-righteousness to God, but it's a way to live in peace, and to know that we are with God. And it's a way that when we are with God, we are going to grow. We are going to grow in his grace. And so that brings us to this place of prayer. Today we are going to talk about the spiritual discipline of prayer. Now there are many, many facets to prayer. Um, I was kind of overwhelmed as I was sitting, preparing, trying to figure out what, what am I going to say and talk about prayer? Like prayer is deep and wide and mysterious and um, you know we could go almost any place when we're talking about prayer but then <laughs> I thought that what we should look at is what attitude do we have towards God when we pray it's kind of the place that God has led me this morning is what is the attitude that we should have towards God when we pray, because we've talked about them a little bit. We've talked about this attitude of underness, and we've talked about this attitude of being over, and we've talked about this attitude of getting things from and doing things for, and this attitude of being with. And I thought we should look deeper into our attitudes. What is our attitude of prayer when we go to prayer with God? <laughs> and so this morning I want you guys to turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you could. I believe it'll also be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 6, this is where God has kind of led me to, to see um, our position towards God in prayer. Chapter 6, 
verse 5. And he says this, When you pray, and this is Jesus speaking, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who, as we forgive those our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray this morning. Uh, dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we can come together and learn from your word, that we might know what it is to pray and be with you, to be in intimate, deep relationship with you. And God, may you begin to transform our prayer lives starting right now. God, may you transform us uh, to be hungry to pray um, because that hunger to pray is to be with you. And God, may you take away all fear, all anxiety around our prayers. And God, may you fill it with peace and with joy and with love. In your name we pray. Amen. And so what we have here in Matthew chapter 6 is what I found is a distinction between two different types of prayer. Jesus comes and he's giving his sermon on the mount. He's speaking both to the Jews and to the pagans. And he's saying in this passage, look, there's two different types of prayer. There's two different ways that we can be praying. There's the way as the Gentiles pray. And the word Gentiles here can be translated into the nations. It's not like the formal word Gentile. It's not uh, the word that means like the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, but it actually means more kind of like the nations. Don't pray as the nations pray or pagans. And so for the rest of this morning, we're going to talk about this Gentile prayer being a type of pagan prayer, okay? So don't pray like the pagans. And then there's a way of praying that is like the Christian way of praying. And what we see here is that prayer is not just a Christian thing. Because as Jesus addresses these people, as he addresses the Jews and the nations, or the pagans, in the same breath, both people pray. Both people pray. Both the Jews and the future Christians and the people of the nations, they both pray. There's just two different types and approaches towards their prayers. And if you, when they take polls and when they uh, ask people, you know, how much do you pray or when do you pray, it's been polled that 90% of Americans pray, although not 90% of Americans consider themselves Christians. And so prayer um, kind of spans across all forms of religion, all forms of spiritual experience has this idea of prayer rooted in it. It's not a 100% Christian thing to do. And the same thing with all of the spiritual disciplines that we're going to talk about in the next seven weeks. None of them are explicitly Christian. They can be found in almost every other faith. Now, the thing that makes 
our discipline's Christian is not the discipline itself, but it is Jesus Christ. It is whom, it is the person that we aim that discipline towards. It is who we are attempting to communicate in that discipline that makes our discipline Christian versus pagan. And so what we have here is not the division between the irreligious and the religious. Because when we use the word pagan, when we use the word the nations, we often think very quickly to non-spiritual. We often think of um, atheism and people that are um, very violent towards spiritual realities. And the reality is, is that the world out there is a very religious world. It's a very spiritual world. It's just not a Christian world. And so the divide, Jesus says, is not between the irreligious and the religious, but the divide is between the religious and the Christian. And this is where our prayer kind of is divided and where we can begin to assess our prayer. And he gives us a test. Jesus is giving us a test to see what type of prayer do we pray. When we go to prayer, when we go to prayer in Christ, are we praying pagan prayers or are we praying Christian prayers? And this division here (laughs) is between those who pray like the pagans and those who pray the way that Jesus gives us in relationship with the words, our Father. Our Father. And so what we have here is we have pagan prayer. And pagan prayer is described with um, heaping up empty words. And they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Um, The phrase, um, empty phrases here, um, in the NIV is translated as babbling. Do you go on babbling in your prayers? Or do you have empty phrases or words in your prayers? And are your words many? That's the, that's the litmus test for the pagan prayers. Or, Jesus says, don't be like them. He says, but instead, go and pray our Father. Go and pray <laughs> in relationship. So what Jesus is getting at here is that there's a difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer, and that is what is the relational assumption that you have when you approach God? What is your relational assumption that you have when you approach God? And the two distinctions that I think, the one that makes pagan prayer and Christian prayer, the two assumptions is that we either go to God viewing him as transactional, where I'm going to give something and you're going to give something in return. And I think that this is why pagan prayer is described as heaping of empty words and many words. Because the pagan goes to God thinking that if they can say the right words, if they can schmooze God, if they can have the appearance of of grandiose prayers, then maybe God will hear them. And maybe God will answer their prayers. Or is your prayer life familial? And this is where Jesus corrects the pagan prayers and says, do not be like those pagans. Instead, go and pray prayers that look like our Father. Go to God and see him as a familial relationship. Um, the last couple of weeks, I was listening to um, podcasts, reading materials to kind of prepare for the series, for the sermon also. And I came across um, an illustration by Tim Keller, um, which I've heard from previous pastors, like has been a place of like massive reference. And so just so you know, this is my first reference to Tim Keller. Um, 
but um, I think he kind of says something so simply and is able to kind of address this place of transactional relationship and familiar relationship with this simple illustration. And he says that there is a difference between tenants that live in your house and family members. That oftentimes, that if you have a house that you're going to rent out to tenants, that relationship with your tenants looks different than a, the relationship that you have with people that come and live in your house that are family or that are seen as family. And so the first relationship that you have with your tenants is a formal relationship. It's based on the idea of transaction. It's based on the question of what do I have to offer you? And so the, the first question is, well, I have a house to offer you. I have a space for you to live. And I ask you, what do you have to offer me for this space? And it's like, well, I have this rent to offer you. And it's like, great, I will offer you space if you offer me rent. Um, and I also hope that you respect the space that I'm offering to you to rent. And there's this, this transaction that takes place. And so there's a landlord and there's a tenant. And this transaction takes place. And as long as the transaction um, remains viable, then there's peace in the relationship. Um, but as soon as stuff starts to break down in the house and the tenant keeps paying the rent, the tenant's going to have a problem with the landlord. The moment that the landlord keeps up his house, but the tenants begin to destroy the house or begin to become faulty on their rent payments, then there's going to be conflict between the landlord and the tenant. And I think in many places in our spirituality and our Christian walk, we have accepted God as our landlord. We've, we've looked at God and we're like, God, what do you have to offer me salvation and life? Okay, awesome. Like, I will then offer you um, whatever I can to try and match that. And I will try and pay you back for the, for the gift that you've given me. It's not even a gift for the, for the um, supply that you've given me through Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and live a life that pays you back. The second option, though, that we could have is that you could go and live with family. And the basis of the familial relationship is not one of what do I have for you, but it is what am I to you? Am I a brother? Am I a sister? Am I a cousin? Am I a mother? Am I a father? The question is fundamentally different. Who am I to you? And it's based, instead of on transaction, it's based on commitment. There's so many people that you deal with people in your lives that you would not deal with on any other level relationally unless they were your family. Like there's just too much crazy there. But because they're your family, you don't ask the question of what do you have for me? You ask the question of who am I to you? And who are you to me? And that bond of brother, sister, mother, father is stronger than any type of transactional relationship. Because if that was, if your relationship with your family members were transactional, like they would have been gone a long time ago. Because you don't have time to put up with that type of crazy in your life. But you do. And you do because they are family. And that relationship is based on commitment. And so when we go to God, we can go to God with this relationship as a tenant. Where we approach him and we ask him, to be the landlord of our lives, or we can approach him as this relationship of family 
where we can ask him to be the father of our lives, this place of relationship. And so Matthew is giving us a test. Well, Jesus in Matthew is giving us a test, and it's a test to know whether or not we are praying as pagans or as Christians. Jesus tells us that the pagans heap up empty words, and they think that they'll heard because of their many words. And it's interesting that Jesus describes their prayers as full of empty words. The phrase full of empty words could also be translated as hollow words, vain words, insincere words. They're words that you use to flatter, to manipulate. And so when you meet somebody and you're looking to flatter them or you're looking to get something from them, like you, you put on your best self. And maybe you say some things you don't really mean because you're trying to manipulate an outcome from them, a positive relationship, a positive feeling in that relationship that is actually incredibly, incredibly shallow. And this is what it looks like to pray like the pagans, this very shallow, many words, insincere words, hollow words. And just to be honest, there's been times in my life where that has been my relationship with God. I don't know about you, but where I just go to pray and I just say a bunch of insincere stuff. And I was like, well, I prayed. At least I prayed. Saying a bunch of insincere stuff was better than not praying. Um, And I think Jesus would say, no, it's probably better not to pray than to go and pray a bunch of insincere words. The second part of (laughs) the second part of this verse is that Jesus says that they offer up many prayers. So they, off, they heap up hollow phrases, insincere phrases, but also he finds it necessary to reiterate it and say that they use many words. It's like the idea is repeated, like many phrases, many words, but this, this word many has the connotation of anxious, of anxiety. And so you could retranslate verse 7 to say that the pagans go and that they pray in ways that they heap up hollow, vain, empty phrases, and they think that they will be heard for their words are anxious, for their anxious words. And so I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes, kids do this all the time. Like, they will run up to a parent and they'll be like, the world is ending! And they do this because they know that it will create a response from the parents. And the parent's like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. Um, but maybe you don't respond that way. Maybe, maybe your child has come to you enough times that you know that the world is not ending. But it's still, this idea is like, if I can be seen as incredibly anxious that my world is tumbling, tumbling down, then maybe that will cause God to act faster on my behalf. And so this is the test of pagan prayer. Are your prayers hollow? Are they insincere? And are they filled with anxious, the world is ending type of manipulative words and thoughts, prayers? <laughs> and so this is what I believe some of our prayers look like. And I know that this is what some of my prayers look like at times. But Jesus shows us that there is a different type of prayer. There's a type of prayer that is not anxious. There's a type of prayer that is not filled with empty, hollow, and shallow words. And it's a prayer that is Christian prayer, and it's a prayer that begins with our Father. It's a prayer that is not bound by performance, but it's rather seen from a place of identity. 
And it's here where we can invite God to be our Father. And maybe some of us this morning have realized that we have not done that, or we've not lived that well. We've not lived in the identity of God being our Father well. And the way that we can do that is we can go to God honestly and say, look God, I, I don't deserve to be your son or daughter. I don't deserve it. But you brought your son Jesus, and he lived the life that I should have lived. And he died the death that I should have died. And on that merit alone, I'm asking, would you be my father? Would you accept me as your father by the life that is your son, as he lived the life that I should have lived, and as he died the death that I should have died? And it's in that place that God becomes and can step in and be our father. So from which place do you approach your prayer life? Is God your landlord? There is God your Father. Because when your God is your Father, you can be, begin to see what life is like when it's with God. What life is like to be lived with God. I'm afraid that when we live life as God as our landlord is when we begin to see our lives as, well, we need to life, live our lives under God, like we have to live our lives under our landlord. And so it's, imperative that we know the difference and that we experience the difference, that we move ourselves from this place of under God to living life with God, where God is <laughs> our Father. It is a life that's in awe of our adoption from God that says that we are his son, that we are his daughter, that fuels our life. Without the words, our Father, there are no more disciplines to be had. There's no celebration to be had. There's no daily bread to partake in. There's no reason for confession. There's no forgiveness to be had. And I believe that's why Jesus begins the prayer with this familial relationship of God, our Father, because it's there where there is celebration. It's there where there is life to be given. It's there where forgiveness is found. In this place of our Father. And so my hope is that our prayer life would be transformed today by Jesus by moving our prayers away from the manipulative prayers of anxious thoughts based on our merit and performance to the place where we might be able to live and experience God like a child. Because you see, a tenant of a king who lives in a castle would not dare to wake the king in the middle of the night because he found himself thirsty. If you were invited to, to stay at a king's castle and you woke up and you're like, man, I'm really thirsty, you probably wouldn't think, hey, I'm, I'm just going to go wake the king up and uh, ask him for a glass of water. But if you are a child, if you're a child of that king and you're living in that castle, as a child of that king, you know that you're the one person that has, that's able to have the boldness and the access to go and have the audacity to wake a king from the middle of his sleep for a glass of water. Only a child has that type of access. And it's from there where that child would receive the glass of water that he desires. And this is the beauty of adoption. This is the beauty of our salvation. 
And it's from this place where we can begin to see how life has been designed to live with God from the beginning. Where we can see ourselves as God's beloved child. In John 17, Jesus prays a prayer to God right before his death. He's praying for his disciples. And Jesus prays that the world may know that God loves them even as God loved him. Jesus prays this prayer in John 17. God, I pray for the world that they might know that you love them even as you love me. God loved Jesus. He was his son. And I think a lot of us don't think that God loves us with the same love that he loved his own son. But here Jesus, as he's praying for us, his prayer for the world as he's about to die for it is that we would know, that the world would know that God loves us even as he loves his own son. And so God desires us to experience to be with him through prayer. Through prayer. And so um, I think Paul understands this best in Ephesians chapter 3. And so if we can go to Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bible, this is where I'd like to close. In this place of idea of, of living life with God, of praying prayers that are with God, that understand that we are adopted as sons and daughters, that we are part of his family where we pray our Father. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays on our behalf so that we might know the fullness of what it is to live the life of our Father, to live life with God. And so this is Paul's prayer for us. In verse uh, 14, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened by the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell, so that Christ might be with you in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses our knowledge, that you might be filled with all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than all we think or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so when we pray, Our Father, we put away all manipulation and all anxiety. And it's here where we will experience life with God. And it's here where Paul points us that there is a life with God that is greater than we are able to imagine greater than what we are able to ask or imagine, what we are able to ask or think. And I think that's the beauty of life with God, and life with God in prayer, is that when we understand God is our Father, and we go to Him and pray to Him as God our Father, it's a place where we allow God to blow our minds, to give us an imagination for things that we would never be able to imagine in the first place. And maybe some of you have testimonies of that where you're like, man, there's a place in my life where I didn't know what was going to happen next. 
I didn't know where God was going to go next. I didn't know what to pray. But I went to him and I prayed. I'm like, God, show me the next step. And he blew your mind. It was greater than anything you would have ever dreamed of asking. And it came through that God showed up for you because he loves you as his child. What I love about prayer and what I love about the discipline of prayer, especially in the place of seeing God as our Father, seeing us in relationship with Him, is that it blows the doors open on what we can ask. It challenges us to expand our imagination of what God wants to do within our families, what God wants to do in our neighborhoods, what God wants to do in our churches, what God wants to do in the world. He gives us an imagination that's far greater And we get to step into that with faith and say, God, show me. Show me more. Show me more, Father, for what you have for this world, for your people. And this is not so we can receive stuff from God, but it's so that we can go to him and know him as the loving Father that he is and rest in that and do life with him. I hope you guys see and hear the difference this morning of what it is to do life with God and how prayer gives us the permission and the imagination to grow. And maybe you're saying, Justin, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm really struggling with this idea of God as my Father. And the beautiful thing is is that I'm going to take you to adoption. When a child is adopted, what changes? What changes? He's chosen. But there's another thing that's chosen, another thing that changes, and it's his name, the child's name. The child's name changes. The birth certificate changes. Does the behavior of the child change immediately? No. The child is going to still act like the child. But the difference is, is the status of that child has changed. The status of that child has changed. That child can now know that he is safe in that home. When the child is adopted, the parent's not going to kick them out and say, all right, you need to go back home now because you didn't live a life that is respectful to this community or to this family. You need to go home. You can do that with the neighbor's kids. You can say, hey, it's time, time for you to go home. But when you're adopted and that's changed, it's fundamentally changed to it doesn't matter what your behavior is. This place is your home, and I am now your father. The position has changed. And know that as we are adopted by Christ, our position has changed. And our behavior will be something that follows. It will be something that follows in the footsteps as we grow in this grace. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would begin to, begin to pray our Father and to live a life with God where we find ourselves growing in his grace of prayer, and of the disciplines to follow. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Our dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day. And I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that you have adopted us as sons and daughters. That you have made us parts of your kingdom, parts of your home, to where we can go with boldness and with innocence into your chamber and ask you for the glass of water. 
God, I thank you that you love us even as you have loved your own son. And God, I just pray that you would heal us from our pagan prayers, that you would remove them from our hearts, that we would not go on babbling anymore with empty phrases and empty words, with anxious words, but God, that we would go with you with confidence, that we would go with thanksgiving. So God, I just pray that you would transform our hearts and that you would grow us in ways that are beyond what we'd ever ask or imagine. In your name we pray, amen. Respond in worship and communion.